Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. Jared. In this episode, it is the first of a four-part series we are doing on Herbert Marcuse's book, The One-Dimensional Man. So in this first of four episodes on One-Dimensional Man, we're going to do a short bio of Marcuse, really talk about the book, give it some context of when it was written and why it was important, go over his main theses and a couple of the terms that are important that he uses throughout the book. So we're not going to do a full episode or a full biography of Marcuse. Um, I'm just going to say a little bit about his life and what he did. Um, he was born in Berlin in 1898 obviously to school and got his PhD, etc., and then became a researcher. He became a professor at the Institute for Social Research at the University of Frankfurt, which if you don't know, that is what later becomes known as the Frankfurt School. It was a group of philosophers and social critics that uh, did research at Frankfurt at this Institute for Social Research, um, and critical theory, as an example, is one of their crucial ideas. We're not going to go in depth at the Frankfurt School because we actually have an episode about the Frankfurt School, and it's an actual recording from a lecture that I give in class um, on the Frankfurt School, some of the people that were important there and their main ideas and how they contributed to uh, general thought. So watch that video if you want more on the Frankfurt School specifically. Marcuse and basically the rest of the entire Frankfurt School, uh, the scholars fled Germany. Uh, Marcuse himself fled specifically in 1933. He, uh, as a result of the Nazi, growing Nazi threat, um, he also was Jewish. I don't know if I mentioned that uh, before. So he's a Marxist scholar in Germany that was Jewish. So you can imagine uh, their, need to, well. yeah, their need to uh, escape that. So he spends a year in Switzerland before coming to the United States in 1934. Then, during World War II, he works for the United States government, mainly working for a center called the Research and Analysis Branch uh, of the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA. Interestingly, and I didn't know this before I started doing research, um, a collection of his works and a bunch of the other theorists that were working for the government at the time got published in a book, if you're interested. It's called Secret Reports on Nazi Germany, the Frankfurt School Contribution to the War Effort. So basically, Marcuse works for the U.S. government um, doing analysis on the Nazi threat, Nazi ideology, uh, and so forth. But we have to pause for a second because this is kind of crucial in Marx's, or, sorry, Marcuse's history because he gets a bad rap from some leftists who claim that he was like a CIA agent, which is like the most hyperbolic description that you could possibly have of like what Marcuse actually did for the U.S. government. Um I think it's just completely outlandish that like some of his ideas and him as a person get completely discounted by some people on the left who should be supporting his ideas because he worked for the U.S. government. Um, we'll talk I about mean, yeah, I mean, everybody needs a job at some point. And in this case, like literally this job was taking down Nazis. Like, I mean, if there's going to be a, a government job, you yeah. take, and, and we're not big on government jobs, mind you, even though we actually work technically, it's true. Yeah. whatever, but you get the idea. Like if you're ever going to choose a government job, that's, that's a pretty good one to take, right? Like taking down Nazis. I would, also, I would think, like, yeah, just saying. Who is it for us to judge what he had to do to escape Germany and come to the United States? Right. Like we and, said, and as a not Jewish Marxist a concentration scholar, camp. Yeah. yeah. Like, we have to assume that came with stipulations from the United States government. Right. I'm assuming it was that he had to work for them to help take down the Nazis. Like, weird. Um, so anyways, I think that's a completely unfair assessment and judgment of Marcuse that he at one time during World War II worked for the United States government um, helping to fight the Nazi threat. That is just ridiculous. Um, he became a U.S. citizen in 1940. Um, and after that is when he became his 
began his actual academic work in the United States. He was a professor at Columbia, then Harvard, then Brandeis University, and finally the end of his career at the University of California at San Diego, UCSD. Um, he becomes incredibly, incredibly influential to the quote-unquote new left movements of the 1960s, which include movements like the anti-war movement, the struggle for civil rights, student protest, feminism, etc. And he will obviously talk about why his ideas that led to him being important there. Uh, and they talk about a lot how he became kind of, they called him the father of the new left, because he was one of the intellectuals that did not refuse to speak at protests. So he was oftentimes like out in the quad at UCSD and traveling the world really speaking at protests about his ideas and like what the protesters were fighting against and critiquing like the war and capitalism and so on. So hugely, hugely influential. And just as one specific example of like how he was influential, um, his relationship with Angela Davis uh, is really interesting. Uh, if you don't know who Angela Davis is, I don't know how, but Google that yeah, and don't. learn about Angela Davis. Um, but he actually mentored her through her academic and activist career. She was a student of his at Brandeis, which I actually did not know. And then she went from Brandeis and studied for two years in Frankfurt at the Institute for Social right. Research, doing uh, graduate work there. Then when she came back to the United States, she went to UCSD and was again a student of Marcuse. So she basically followed him to UCSD um, when she comes back to the United States. So that's just a way, like one example of how Marcuse was involved uh, with incredibly influential activists rights, right? and the like, civil rights movement. And they didn't even so agree forth. fully ideologically, right? Yeah, like, no, like, she was like, a... Yeah. Yeah, she she was a Marxist and he mm, really wasn't. Well, he's a Marxist, not, he's just a, not a communist. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Just not a socialist. She said I actually yeah. watched an interview with her yeah. where she's talking about Marcuse and said that he actually disagreed with her becoming a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. Right. Um so yeah, they disagreed somewhat ideologically and like yeah, he didn't care. Um she was doing good things. There's actually a really cool anecdote about And he still supported her when she was on trial, oh, yeah, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. There's an anecdote where students at UCSD stormed one of the administration buildings and like occupied it. And the chancellor of University of California system basically said like the students didn't need to be arrested and like we can consider this uh, matter dead, but someone has to pay for the door. And that magically, anonymously, the money to pay for the door that was destroyed like showed up and it was Marcuse who sent the money. So the fact that he gets a bad rap by the left is like completely outrageous because he legit was like not only doing the intellectual work, but also like on the streets. He stormed the building with them. He was there. Uh, he's on the streets like doing the real stuff. So that's just outrageous. Um, he has so many books and essays that he writes, but by far the two most influential are a book titled Eros and Civilization, which I'll talk about in a second briefly, and then One Dimensional Man, which is what we're going to talk about in the next series of episodes. Eros and Civilization he published in 1955. And it's an attempt by Marcuse to sort of synthesize Freud, Freud's psychoanalytic theories and Marxism. In fact, the whole title is Eros and Civilization, a Philosophical Inquiry into Freud. And this becomes widely influential in talking about sexuality and sex and so forth um, and like the gay rights movements and things like that. Uh, hugely influential book and really, really interestingly, uh, both psychoanalytic and Marxist. Um, yeah, so that one's interesting. We're not going to talk about that one really at all. Obviously, the focus of our episode here is One Dimensional Man, which is titled One Dimensional Man Studies in the Ideology of Advanced Industrial Society, which gets published in 1964. And it sells hundreds of thousands of copies upon its publication. Um, it's, in general, a critique of 
modern at the time in the 1960s capitalistic society um, and his critiques which we'll discuss in depth clearly are wildly influential and applicable not only in the 1960s but also today uh, so he it becomes sort of like the inspiration for a lot of these social justice movements that are happening at the time the, the new social movements right so interesting um, kind of bridges a little bit of a mm-hmm. gap too between like beat beat critiques like beat generation critiques yep. and then what would eventually become like those more like celebrated like 60s eras critiques so yeah, it's kind of like a yeah. good gap bridger i'm not saying like he was like for or like super influential on either side I, well maybe more for the 60s side but like yeah. but it's a it's a bridge right like mm-hmm. 64 is kind of in between right so yeah yeah it's an excellent point okay so let's move on to the actual book let's talk about his two main theses um he talks about these in the introduction, and he admits that these two theses contradict one another. Um, So these are the two. First, advanced industrial society is capable of containing qualitative change for the foreseeable future. So his first thesis is that social change within advanced industrial society is essentially impossible, at least for the foreseeable future. He's talking about revolution here. His second thesis is, Forces and tendencies exist which may break this containment and explode the society. So this is why they contradict. He's saying advanced industrial society is capable of containing change for the foreseeable future, but the forces exist which can actually create change. So he admits they contradict with one another, but those are his two main theses for one-dimensional man. Anything that you want to uh, add to those? No. Okay. Mm -mm. So we're going to talk about those theses in depth in the following series. Uh, through a number of questions which we will ask. So the first one is, in what ways is advanced industrial society totalitarian? Because that's a lot of uh, Marcuse's point throughout this book is the totalitarianism of advanced industrial society. Second, how does advanced industrial society render all forms of opposition and critique as ineffective at resulting in real change? Or to put that a different way, how did advanced industrial society become totalitarian? Third question, what does Marcuse mean when he says that man is one-dimensional? Or to put that another way, how did the subjects of advanced industrial society come to think in a one-dimensional way? And what does that mean? Uh, this is the one-dimensional thought, which is Marcuse's sort of section header for the section part, second part of his book, one-dimensional thought. And the fourth, what is Marcuse's solution for this predicament? Uh, in other words, how can the subjects of advanced industrial society transcend its totalitarianism and bring into being another way of living. So Marcuse says, advanced industrial society is totalitarian. As a result, the subjects of advanced industrial society only think in one way. They have this one-dimensional thought, which is not critical. And finally, how can we fix that? I will tell you uh, just up front, I find myself to be very disappointed in his solution, the part of the book, because he doesn't actually provide a lot. He does, though, in future books. So he writes after this, like, Counter-Revolution and Revolt, and um, an essay on liberation. Uh, We'll actually do episodes on those as well. But you might be left wanting uh, more from Marcuse's solution in One Dimensional Man. One Dimensional Man is an excellent critique, does not provide much of a vision of what's next. Right, exactly. He provides a few points, which we'll obviously discuss in one of the parts of the series, but uh, it's not as much as you might think. Okay, let's move on to... Marcuse's term advanced industrial society and what this means, because this is very clearly an important part of the book. But before we do that, we have to sort of rewind. Oh, I also want to caveat 
we're going to try as much as we can to stick within one-dimensional man uh, in that box and try to not go backwards or forwards into Marcuse's thoughts. So there's not going to be anything from Eros and Civilization, even though it would probably be helpful for us to understand things like repressive desublimation and that kind of stuff. And we're going to try to not go forward to like an essay on liberation and so forth. We're trying to stick with what is inside purely one-dimensional man. Um, so we have to talk about Marcuse's definition of technology and how he makes use of that term, because that will help us to understand uh, this term advanced industrial society. So Marcuse uses the concept of technology as a social process. Most people, when they think of technology, think of like actual things like a hammer or a computer or a machine or whatever. That's not technology for Marcuse. For Marcuse, technology is a social process. These specific things Marcuse refers to as technics. So like a hammer is a technic. A computer is a technic, which I guess in 1964 computers like we know of them now didn't really exist. But that's neither here nor there. So I'm going to read a quote from Marcuse that, where he talks about this. This is the one time I will jump outside of one-dimensional man. This is from an essay that he wrote called Some Social Implications of Modern Technology. He says, We do not ask for the influence or effect of technology on human individuals, for they are themselves an integral part and factor of technology, not only as men who invent or attend to machinery, but as the social groups which direct its application and utilization. Technology as a mode of production, as the totality of instruments, devices, and contrivances which characterize the machine age is thus at the same time a mode of organizing and perpetuating or changing social relationships, a manifestation of prevalent thought and behaviors, an instrument for control and domination. So technology is this process. Technology is the application of the very specific items, the techniques. Um, yeah, uh, he says that technology as a social process, and this is important, quote, develops a set of truth values of their own which hold good for the functioning of the apparatus and that alone. Propositions concerning competitive or collusive behavior, business methods, principles of effective organization and control, fair play, the use of science and techniques are true or false in terms of this value system. That is to say, in terms of instrumentalities that dictate their own ends. So this truth value is what's really, really crucial. Marcuse says that technology as a social process creates our view of what is right or wrong. It creates these values based on how the various techniques are applied. Um, anything to add on that before we move on? I mean, I mean, it's it's kind of what to to oversimplify it, like computers, hammers, cars, phones, whatever we want to analyze, are mere tools, and it, technology itself is the dominant discourse that dictates the use of those tools. I would also argue, and I couldn't necessarily pick it apart in that quote, that 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 dominant discourse is influenced by other dominant discourses of the era, whatever their era might be, industrialism mm -hmm. or capitalism or whatever it might be, 100%. and that influences technology as a dominant discourse. But technology is not the tools. It dictates how those tools are used, but I would also argue, and I didn't hear that in there, it dictates what tools constitute tools and how those tools develop. Mm -hmm. So in other words, unless technology was a dominant discourse, something as simple as like a telephone, right? Like we've picked a telephone up from Alexander Graham Bell however many years ago, and now we have these wonderful like iPhones and things along those lines, but that's because it followed a very linear trajectory uh, and that was dictated by the dominant discourse of technology. Yep. So whereas we look at that iPhone as some sort of amazing advance in comparison to what Alexander Graham Bell had back in the 1800s or whatever, early 1900s, I don't even know when he was around, but it doesn't matter. 
what I would argue is that that's not really all that advanced at all because that technology is merely followed a linear trajectory on the dominant discourse of technology. Mm -hmm. And the only reason it existed is because of this, like, of what Marcuse is talking about, advanced yeah. industrial society and technology as a discourse itself, a social discourse. Yeah, and Marcuse talks about extensively Dictating how... Dictating the terms of engagement. No, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. How techniques can be applied either for liberation or for oppression, and it is technology as a social process that determines which of those happens. And he's going to argue, spoiler alert, that the technology now in modern times is used largely for oppression. Um, and he'll talk about how it can be used for liberation. But as a discourse, that wouldn't be novel or unique. Every dominant discourse, regardless of era, especially when we talk about various ideologies like we have on this podcast, dating back to, to imperialism or, or, or divine right to rule or whatever we've talked about, any dominant discourse is a discourse of control. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go now into his term, advanced industrial society, which he uses throughout. If you really want to make this as simple as absolutely possible, you could basically say that advanced industrial society is modern capitalism. He doesn't actually use the term capitalism very much. He does make use of it, but he uses advanced industrial society as this much bigger umbrella term that sort of establishes – it's his term for the technology of the era, both the 1960s and still to this day um, – so, but it's more than just capitalism as an economic system. And it's more than like the political arrangement of liberal democracy. It's more than like the level or the quantity of like the specific items of technology that we have, um, of industry, if you will. Um, it's more than all of those things independently. It is all of those things combined and the qualitative way which those things are applied to human beings, to problem solving, to oppression in Marcuse's argument, and so forth. So it's much the skating of morality and ethics. Exactly. Yeah. So um, as we mentioned before, technology can either be used to liberate or to oppress. Um, and that really depends on how the items of technology are administered. And like you said, the language and discourse that is created at the time as a result, the morality and the value systems that exist as a result, and so forth. Marcuse argues that advanced industrial society is defined by using technology to oppress in ways that is not only totalitarian, that's his first argument, but also renders all critique and opposition as ineffective in making change, which is very um, important. Um, like I said, a lot of that comes from his earlier essay that was published in 1941 titled Some Social Implications of Modern Technology. So if you want more on his definition of technology and how he's applying it, um, there's actually some Heidegger in there, which is the main influence for his view of technology and so forth. Um, you can read that essay. It's not very long at all. I'll link it in the show notes if you want to check that out. So now let's go into how advanced industrial society itself is totalitarian. Now, by a totalitarian, I use the term uh, fully aware that this might uh, violate certain taboos. We are used to apply the term totalitarian only to, uh, well, first the fascist and Nazi society, then the uh, communist society. That is to say, we are used to apply the term totalitarian to societies under a more or less terroristic dictatorship with a one-party system, with the uh, more or less terroristic uh, elimination of all opposition. I believe that such a 
confined, restricted use of the term totalitarian is itself ideological, because it may serve to cover up the fact, at least in my opinion, a fact that totalitarian tendencies are beginning to show even in societies which are still democratic, which preserve the democratic process and institutions, which have several parties, which may even have countervailing forces. By totalitarian I mean the constellation or situation in which the private as well as public existence of man, of the individual, is controlled, is exposed to standardized, required ways of behavior, standardized imposed values, standardized imposed needs. This can be done by a private as well as by a public bureaucracy. It can be done via the uh, perfectly democratic media of uh, mass communication and so on. It is in a way a consequence, as he quote shows, of technical progress, uh, which implies mass production and mass distribution. Mass production and mass distribution in turn require a considerable degree of standardization, a considerable degree of the submission of the individual to pre-given and superimposed values, ideas, aspirations, so, goals, and so on. Marcuse says that the way that advanced industrial society has organized itself, its technology specifically as a social process, this contemporary industrial society completely dominates our behavior and our ways of thinking. Now, the reason that this is controversial is because Marcuse is suggesting that it's not just like the fascist governments of Italy or the Nazi regime in Germany and so forth that most people commonly think of as totalitarian, that our society, this liberal, democratic, industrialized, and so forth society is also totalitarian. And that's why this portion of his thinking, his theory, is so controversial. Um, we operate under the auspices yes. of freedom and democracy and all of these things, these cute little catchwords that we learn from like when we we're little children and, of course, socialized into believing in um, through, of course, old age. But in reality, he's arguing that even though there might be some small political processes or small economic processes, those little processes do not necessarily create like any sort of actual real freedom because they're all operating under the totalitarianism of advanced industrial society. Mm -hmm. We are dominated by our need to use these tools and and fix these tools and buy these tools and advance these tools like if we really broke down like a, a person's day whether it's in the 60s or in 2020 whatever it is how much time is spent um either giving or partaking to this system of techniques mm -hmm. in, in contrast to like literally anything else we have time to do 
I think, like, the argument's pretty much made. Yeah, like, the argument's about, pretty much made. He talks about later the importance of free time and not just free time where you're, like, playing video games. Because but, like, that's, that's part of it. That's yeah, part of the tech. Like, yeah. truly free time basically does not exist in our society to this day. I ask students how often they actually, like, go out to a park and just lay in the grass and look at the clouds, mm-hmm. and it is zero hours of their lives at this point. Right. Um, whether that's by their own choice. Like, people will say, but that's their choice. But is it really their choice, especially exactly. when being socialized? popped an iPad in that kid's hand the minute it started crying at a restaurant when it was six months old or whatever, all of six months might be a little young or they would pop an iPad. Yeah, I don't think they can hold yeah. iPod, iPads yet, but you get the <laughs> idea, right? Like from that point on, the totalitarianism begins. Yep. Okay. Here's Marcuse himself. Here's a quote. By virtue of society, it has organized its technological base. Contemporary industrial society tends to be totalitarian. For totalitarian is not only a terroristic political coordination of society, but also a non-terroristic economic technical coordination, which operates through the manipulation of needs by vested interests. It thus precludes the emergence of an effective opposition against the whole. Not only a specific form of government or party rule makes for totalitarianism, but also a specific system of production and distribution, which may well be compatible with a pluralism of parties, newspapers, countervailing powers, etc., End quote. So there are two ways that societies can be totalitarian through the terroristic political coordination of society, which is the societies, like I said, of like yeah, Stalin or, or yeah, Hitler exactly. or whatever. And most everyone is used to using totalitarianism in that way. But he says there's a second way, which is non-terroristic economic technical coordination, which he very clearly is using to refer to industrialized countries that would be ordinarily thought of as free, like the United States and the United Kingdom and Germany and so forth. Not in like Nazi Germany, but nowadays. Modern. Um, in fact, he argues that this type of totalitarianism, this non-terroristic economic technical coordination can only exist within a society that has achieved a certain level and a specific type of technology. This is one of his main points throughout the book, that despite all of the perceived, like, quote-unquote, freedoms that we attribute to technology, like increase in standards of living and life expectancy and so forth, that it has also given rise to new ways to oppress and control the lives and the thought and the individual autonomy of the subjects of that society. Now, I want to point out and remind our uh, viewers or listeners that Marcuse is unusually qualified to make these assessments because he was in Nazi Germany and then moved to the United States. And he's experienced experienced, literally both types of totalitarian regimes. Also, keep in mind, he moved to the United States during World War II and then experienced the United States post-World War II when there was just this complete explosion of technology and industry and so forth. Uh, after the end of World War II. So he's seen both things firsthand and realizes like, wow, this is just as totalitarian, although different than the other types of totalitarian societies that we are used to. Right. Just because no one was putting a gun uh, to somebody's head to make them spend, I don't know, 40 to 70 hours a week on an assembly line at a General Motors plant does not mean that's not also totalitarian. It dominates their way of life. They become dependent in this specific example on General Motors for something as simple as their right to live, i.e. healthcare. Um, like that is that's totalitarianism. And it's even more sort of scary. Sorry to pick because... on General Motors, but whatever. I just popped in my head. 
it's perhaps even more scary than like the overt political totalitarianism because it completely hap- we're unaware of it happening, right? Which is part of Marcuse's argument that we don't even realize we're incapable of even realizing how the, the intricacies of how this works and that it's even existing. Right, because my fictional one-dimensional man gets to go home at least at the end of the shift, sip a martini, pass out, and do it all again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right, so that basically brings to an end our first episode on one-dimensional man. Tune into the next one when we will talk about um, a very important aspect of this um, Marcuse's book, One Dimensional Man. We will be talking about the irrationality of rational society. So how society is structured in a way that is so rational, it's actually irrational. This is one of the most controversial parts when we teach this book in class. Our students have a really hard time um, because this sort of confronts everything they think they know about technology and how it works and their society. Um, so you can find us online. We are at revolutionandideology.com. We are on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and like the video, subscribe, give us a comment. If you're listening to this on your podcast app, uh, please leave us a rating and a comment. And if you really want to support what we do, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolutionandideology. Um, I'm Nick. Jared. Later.